Hey everyone, welcome to the Everyday Mental Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda. On today's episode, Lauren and I are chatting with Chuck Letty. Chuck is based in Boston and he is a business brand storyteller. He connects brands and customers with engaging stories that help people solve problems and be happy. It's a really great episode. I hope you enjoy. I'm your co-host, Lauren, today, and on today's episode, we are joined by Chuck Letty, and we're really excited to talk to him, and just to kind of give you the best introduction and the best overview, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So, um, Chuck, welcome to the podcast, and can you just tell the listeners, give them like a little overview of yourself so we can get to know you? I'd be happy to. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, Lauren, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for making a safe space uh, for people to share their insights and their stories and experiences. This is a very important endeavor that you're doing. Um, I, am a brand to, uh, I am a brand storyteller, so I work for businesses. Um, I work for higher institutions of higher education, software and technology companies, helping these entities tell their stories, um, usually through blog posts or white papers. Um, I'll interview experts inside these companies and get their message out to people who maybe aren't kind of inside the company. Um, They're trying to connect with their customers, et cetera. So what I do is tell stories for a living. And I'm also someone who kind of tells stories on the stage. I do live storytelling uh, through the moth as a creative expression in my own life. Um, I have my own blog. So I I like, I'm someone that likes expression and I also like community. Um, But professionally, I'm a Technically, a B2B brand storyteller uh, working for clients like MIT, um, also software and technology companies, uh, marketing technology companies. That's awesome. <laughs> That's uh, You work with a lot of, sounds like a lot of important people. <laughs> I don't know. Everybody's important, but <laughs> well, we just try true. to tell their stories. Everyone's story is important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good living. I actually enjoy the work. It could be a lot worse. I work for myself. I'm not in an office or in a, in a cubicle somewhere. I can take my laptop wherever I want, even outside. Um, so the freedom of that is helpful for my own mental health. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I really, that really stood out when I was just learning more about you is that, you know, you've talked about your struggles with social anxiety um, yes. and yet you're all about community. And yes. I really love that because you know, when you have social anxiety, it can be really hard to put yourself out there and talk to people and and make community. So um, how did you kind of get into that mindset? Well, the the way that my social anxiety manifested itself was through withdrawal, physical withdrawal. So I would narrow into my own body. I would have this kind of tunnel vision and I, I would almost black out. So I found that there was that fear and mistrust around me that I needed to cope with somehow. How, how, how could I manage these feelings that I have inside my own brain um, around not sure if I can trust people around me? So I didn't see them as community. I saw them as like potentially negative stimuli in my life at one, at one time. And what I found is that the way to, the antidote to that was to reach out and, and try to, to test the environment that's around me and actually to reach out to other people in, in a friendly way, in an open way, and say, you know, can I create an environment around me where there can be trust? And when I do that, I don't have the social anxiety. 
It's the antidote to my social anxiety. But I have to work. I have to reach out. I have to initiate uh, to create that trust. And that's up to me. Um, so that, that's how it works with my anxiety. It's kind of a strange um, counterintuitive thing. But community is the best um, tool that I have to, to cope with social anxiety. That's wonderful. And it sounds like you kind of work on making yourself comfortable then and, and not oh. yeah, comfortable around people. <laughs> huge. It's a huge thing yeah. mm-hmm. because you, you don't initiate. It, it takes practice to initiate. You know, there was this other guy. He did this thing like every single day he would ask for something. Like it was mm-hmm. kind of an asking project that he did on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And he would ask for something uncomfortable. Like um, he'd order a slice of pizza and like, can I get a second slice for free? Oh, yeah. And then the next day he would do something <laughs> different. Like, would you hire me at your company? Even though I don't have any experience, I'm not qualified. <laughs> so every day he would put himself into an uncomfortable situation to learn to be uncomfortable and how to cope with that. And at the end of this project, he was more comfortable. So I look at it that way, little by little, wow. stick your neck out of your shell a tiny bit and then a tiny bit more and a tiny bit more mm-hmm. and you get comfortable over time. Yeah, it sounds like it's a desensitization process in a way yes. of um, yeah. anything that may be a fear or in a huge stimuli that may be causing yes. the anxiety. Yeah, yes. that's getting why out it, of my head. I call yeah, it. getting out of my head. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I was going through my bouts of uh, struggles with OCD, I had a lot of fear around contamination. So sure. I did a lot of exposure yeah. therapy, and that essentially is kind of works in the same way. Is that it just desensitizes you, and you know, you kind of have these constant experiences that your life's not going to end. Like things aren't going right. to be that bad yeah. like once you go through them. So um, that's really unique because uh, I know we've talked a little bit about social anxiety on the podcast, but yes. there's so many different varying anxieties. Um, oh, goodness, yes. Yeah. So it, it's really interesting because uh, they they respond in, in similar ways to certain therapies, but they have to be approached yes. very differently. So. That's absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I noticed, as I said, that I would have physical withdrawal into myself and, and would kind of be spinning out of control. I'd have panic attacks. Mm-hmm. And I learned over time that if I push out of myself, if I push outward and get out of my head, that's going to help me. And now I just do that as a regular practice. That is so great because I know, you know, I just know I st- I've struggled with that too. You know, even when you were mentioning those situations, I was starting to feel some anxiety. You know, it can be oh, hard sorry. to put yourself out there. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's fine. It's just I could totally relate, you know, to the do situation. What, do do an inch more than what you're comfortable with, just a tiny bit more than what you're comfortable yeah. with and see what happens. Like probe the situation, test the situation and mm-hmm. see what happens. Like, I mean, I hate to say it, but I used to catastrophize. So I'd be like, mm-hmm. well, I didn't die. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I would tend mm-hmm. to catastrophize. So, oh, like, it's okay. I'm still here. Like, small things like that. Um, what's the worst that could happen? And then would I be able to handle it? So, yeah, small, small things, small steps. Yeah. Very yeah. true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I like to also unpack and bring it back. So when did you first start struggling with social anxiety? Oh, gosh, it's such a difficult question where that comes from. Um, I mean, there's a family history of, of mental health issues. Mm-hmm. My dad was schizophrenic. Um, my dad's sister, my aunt, was also schizophrenic. Um, so, you know, you struggle. Like, my mother struggled with that. She was an immigrant from Ireland. So bringing up a family without 
my father there. My father was in a VA institution when I was growing up. So he, we didn't see him very much, maybe three times per year. Um, so, and I was also in a very kind of a difficult neighborhood, which is South Boston, the housing mm-hmm. projects of South Boston in the 1970s, um, which there was a lot of unemployment and a lot of kind of poverty. It wasn't a place where people thrive uh, naturally uh, through the environment. There wasn't a lot mm-hmm. of opportunity economically or, or in any other way. Um, so I found in that environment that I had to kind of walk to the other side of the street as a kid to stay out of trouble, avoid people. So I found refuge in books. I would read. Um, I would stay in the house and just kind of find imaginary things, you know, through mm-hmm. books. I would I would inhabit other worlds um, through books because I didn't like the environment where I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure that it was safe. Um, and it was a difficult time in Boston in, in the 70s where we had a busing crisis, mm-hmm. a desegregation crisis in the city. And I was right in the middle of all of that as a, as a 10 and 11-year-old kid. Yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, I am from the area too, and yeah, yeah, being familiar with the history of Boston, and a lot of people don't know that there was uh, very intense, especially around that time, obviously I wasn't alive during that time, but we learned about it in school, Um, so, and we know through research, when you grow up in environments that don't allow you to flourish in your around violence and trauma and even family trauma. You know, you're not, you didn't have your dad. Um, So it sounds like your coping mechanisms of kind of some isolation and and avoiding those situations um, may have led into kind of some of that social anxiety. But I mean, that, that's how you survive, you know, that, and that's kind of that, what ends up happening. So, and that you survive in one particular environment and the coping strategies you use are appropriate for that environment. But mm-hmm. then you go to college, you graduate, you yeah. go to work, and you're in a different environment, but you haven't reprogrammed your coping strategies. You're still like hiding in the corner and not talking to people. And I had that, and that caused a lot of trouble when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. How to figure out like how to reach out to people when I'm like grew, grew up in a situation where you couldn't reach out to people. It didn't feel safe to do that. Absolutely. So unlearning that, yeah. learning other coping strategies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah. such a great point. And a lot of the times I think when we see with mental health, we see, you know, just the problems and the symptoms that people are going through, but we're not yes. seeing the history and the trauma. And actually a, yeah. lot, a lot of these, uh, a lot of people with anxiety and depression have roots in like coping to get through something, you know, absolute Mm -hmm. trauma, trauma. trauma. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's genetics as well at play. I imagine, I don't know fully what those genetics are, but they're at play for some people. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I suspect I'm one of, one of those people where there was a genetic predisposition through the family. Mm -hmm. You know, in the mental health community, it's always the nurture versus nature debate. And I think people we've talked to on the podcast, there kind of tends to be a combination of both of the environments. And also most people we've talked to, their family has some type of experience with a mental health condition. So, um, and then like you said, the trauma just kind of continually adds to it as well. And you don't always see a space where you can have some freedom to be yourself, to mm-hmm. find your own identity. So as you, as you as I got older, you struggled to find that space. And as a writer, even as a, as a creative person, you struggle to find your voice, what it is you need to say. 
Mm-hmm. And, and mental health plays directly into that. What is it that I'm intended to say? What is it that I can say? And it can't be like, check the box, the same as everybody else, whatever people want me to say. Those are the wrong answers. And that's like, I'm a marketer, so we, we talk a lot in marketing about differentiation. And you can apply that to people because it is your own experiences and what you do with your experience that makes you different, that makes you unique, and that allows you to contribute in, in a unique way. So I'm at the point in my life, I see it that way now, where it's not mm-hmm. the, the weight of it. It's something that uh, is a source, is a resource for me where I can contribute. Absolutely, because you don't want to hear the same story from everybody. You want it to be no. their unique story and their background. Right. And, and you, when you understand your own story, then you can connect to other people. You really enjoy that. Yeah. There's a joy in that. Creatively, too. I'm a creative person. It's interesting, too, just listening to your story and, and what you're doing for your work and then also yes. what I do and then also what Lauren does and talking to mm-hmm. other guests. A lot of the people we've talked to are naturally creatives and they're in these creative yes. industries yes. that have a lot of flexibility and we work with clients. Mm-hmm. And do you think that part of it is because of living with a mental health condition that you've kind of sought out this mm-hmm. type of work? I think it forces you to learn first about yourself mm-hmm. and what situations work for you. And then because you've learned all that, you can apply that to kind of your business. So um, the way that I run my business, my storytelling business, I'm full time and I've been at it for a while. I build the business around my mental health vulnerabilities. Um, so my focus is on like, how do I be happy as a person? How do I manage mm-hmm. my my anxiety and my vulnerability. And when I lean into that, I'm successful. I'm more successful than I ever thought I would be because I'm myself. I'm authentic. Like this is my voice. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Cause we've, we've talked before on the podcast about balancing, you know, work and mental health and, and how important yes. that is. And I really, I found it to be the same that it's, it really does start from finding what works for you and what is good for your mental health and, building your work situation and your environment around that in a healthy way. You'll never fit into a situation that isn't isn't meant for you to fit in. You'll never fit in. And when you try, you damage, you damage yourself. Um, Self-acceptance is very important. It is. Mm -hmm. And you may be getting benefits out of that. I know people need to pay the rent and health insurance (laughs) and all that. You know, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, But you do pay a price when you are like, you have to conform to things that you, you know, a company or the anxieties that get induced inside of a company, working in an office, all of the life that we live is, is anxiety inducing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Our modern world and technology yeah. and all of it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we need about three hours, but yes. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's uh, and for anyone who's listened to me on the podcast and Lauren and I've talked about work-life balance and so forth and mental health in the workplace is something I feel really, really, really strongly passionate about and changing. Um, I think it it comes from a desire because of the struggles that I've had just with uh, like workplaces that are not productive, like open spaces, not having flexible oh. time, like bad yeah, management. Yes. And it's just like ev- everything, you know, it's um, yes. <laughs> but it's like, we're spending billions and billions of dollars a year on lost productivity and so forth. So yes. clearly there's a huge, um, 
there's a huge barrier that's going on. Um, it's 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 so funny because this is one of the topics that I write about mm-hmm. often in my work for my clients. So mm-hmm. I part of what I do is to get paid to to read about you know employee engagement and engagement strategies that different wow. HR departments are using. Mm-hmm. So I'll interview someone like Amy Edmondson, who's over at Harvard Business School, and she writes about psychological safety in the workplace mm-hmm. and what are the conditions needed to create psychological safety. And it's the same thing as between two people that saying that there's a safe space here for you to be yourself. You can be yourself. I invite you to be yourself and I'll be here and listen. And if you do that between two people or in a huge organization, it's the same. You have psychological Mm -hmm. safety and you also, by the way, have productivity. Mm -hmm. You get the best out of people, by the way. And then you're not losing billions of dollars and like all of that lost productivity. Yeah. I think mm. there's there's a huge disconnect though. Like because when we enter oh, yes. relationships with friends or partners or you know close people in our social circle, we tend to kind of have more vulnerabilities and we break down those barriers, but for some reason we have this psychological and sociological mindset when we go into workplaces that we yes. have to cut off parts of who we are. And we can't, Unfortunately, yes. yeah, we can't be our authentic selves. And I think that's where there's this huge, you know, like you were saying, the psychological safety net. Yes. If people yes. showed up and were authentic and... Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think mm-hmm. so much would change. And I've done a lot of, you know, I, I've worked in more recently a position that required me to kind of function in an HR way. And so I've been doing a lot of research around HR and and businesses. And, you know, my background really is marketing and creative, but I see all these things intersecting. And I just, I wonder how like small businesses, medium businesses, you know, fortune 500 companies, how they can start implementing these changes because until then, I don't think that I, I, Say out sound pessimistic, but I think we're just going to continually be a hamster wheel, you know. And yeah. well, you businesses. you know yourself. There's there's issues around control. Mm-hmm. So do you want to centralize control so that people follow a certain number of rules? People need to be compliant with the processes of the company. That's one way to do it because, like, the implicit message is we do not trust our people that we've hired mm-hmm. and are paying. Right. Um, the mm-hmm. other side would be like. How do we establish and and give people more trust? How do we empower them to be able to express themselves more in a way that generates value for the company? And that's around psychological safety. And a lot of companies struggle, and they continue to struggle. It's kind of a modern tragedy, um, all of the lost productivity in companies. It's also an individual tragedy, as you guys know. Um, It happens at the individual level, but it it hurts organizations as well. We all know that. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's really kind of fascinating when you think about it. And, you know, we're talking about psychological safety nets and I th- you said your client at Harvard. And so yes. I think, you know, some places are catching on and they may be yes. more of these like intellectual research, you know, places. And, you know, I think a lot with my small mom and pop shops and, you know, yes. they can barely afford to like even outsource marketing and so forth. And yeah. you just wonder how they're functioning, you know, day to day. And I think also right. because 
we don't really have a lot of supports too for people like business owners and stuff. Um, no. mm-hmm. so but I feel we, we can do things from the ground up as mm-hmm. individuals. Yeah. We can interact to the way that we interact as business owners, as managers, as employees, mm-hmm. you know, we can model behavior. We can push back a little bit that, you know, that's also stressful, but we, we can try to do that. And what you guys are doing here with the podcast, destigmatizing mental health and saying, we have to make space for people to, to mm-hmm. be themselves, to be vulnerable. That's a great message for companies too. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I think people are, are, people and businesses are starting to catch on. Um, I just, I just think that maybe, like for me, for instance, for example, one huge thing an HR department can do in their employee handbook is yes. under sick days, put mental health as well. I think yes. that is something mm-hmm. that can like foundationally change so many people because like we, we talk all the time, you, you call out and you have the flu, but you can't call out and say you had a panic attack or a depressive episode and you have to go to the hospital yes. for a few days to balance out your medication. Exactly. Um, yes. And mm-hmm. I think if managers understood that, they could maybe you can have conversations about flex time or, you know, mm-hmm. extended leaves or just yes. how can we make the workplace suit for our employees? Because, you know, a lot of people with mental health, I mean, it's, you know, it's probably half of the workplace population at this point struggles with oh, yes. anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. So why aren't we... Or at least with not being authentic. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah, 99%, exactly. 99% not being authentic. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like even for people who don't struggle, I mean, there still is like stress that they're dealing oh, with gosh. on a daily basis or, you know, workplace performance and productivity and so forth. So, um, I, yeah. I, I know think, in, my, in my own experience, both times that I was hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital, I was in the workplace and and had panic attacks inside the workplace oh, and then wow. had to go out on disability. So um, mm. it does, it's so stressful. Work is so stressful. Mm. Um, one of many stressful things, but uh, work can trigger a lot of, of anxiety for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm lucky now to be self-employed and, and a solopreneur. I really enjoy the flexibility of that. Would you mind talking a little, just a little bit about that? I'd love to hear kind of, you know, how, what led up to that and what kind of, you know, work environment you were in at the time. Yeah. I mean, I've been in a marketing um, function for for a while. I was Mm -hmm. in book marketing and and other kinds of things. I Mm -hmm. I was also in education. I was a teacher. Uh, Actually, I was a corporate trainer, if you can believe. I would train executives (laughs) in communication who would come to, to Boston from overseas Mm-hmm. Um, so CEOs, CFOs of large multinationals in Europe and South America, kind of helping them improve their English skills. Um, teaching was very stressful too. One of the more stressful jobs. Um, and it's not even around the function. It's around like being authentic and and managing your own stress and and not kind of feeling your own feet underneath you. Not having a foundation of of kind of self-confidence. So I don't I don't want to think say that it's a functional thing. I think we all struggle with it no matter the function. Um, kind of finding who we are and finding our voice and what is it that we're meant to do. And um, work gets in the way of that because there's a counter narrative coming from the workplace. You have to be this person because I hired you to do this and I'm telling you to do that. And you yes. have to be that person. And maybe you don't feel that way. Like you said, mm-hmm. I need to call in sick because like I'm having stress and that's not legitimate, right? It's stigmatized. Mm-hmm. That's a horrible mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah. And I know some companies, I, th- I mean, I've seen it getting better with some of the, the newer companies. Some of the more like techie companies tend to have yeah. more flex time and kind of, um, you know, as long as you get the work done, you can take Friday off or something, yes. you know, things like that make it a little bit easier. But, you know, yes. I've also had jobs where it's like you have to work there for a year before you get a day off, you know, wow. it's, it's just expected to put your nose to the grindstone and that's kind it's a of sentence. what you need it's to a do. Prison yeah. Sentence. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's and definitely some change. Happen. That's yeah. so hard for people to find that flexibility and to negotiate mm-hmm. that. It's such a difficult skill for anyone. Even if you don't have mental health vulnerability, it's mm-hmm. hard to do that. Um, so, I mean, I was like so many people, you just go into those jobs and you, try to cope and you don't leave, you don't think about leaving, you you think that if you're if you change yourself, like you'll become a better person. So yeah. you have this cognitive dissonance that I'm not the person that I am at work, that I am outside of work. And I like myself outside of work. Mm-hmm. So that's not healthy, that dissonance that people have. No. You spend so much time at work. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So yeah. And it, that's the thing where it's being grounded. I think being grounded in yourself and who you are is such mm-hmm. a long struggle, but it's what life is. Finding your feet underneath you and what you can do to, to cope with the stresses, the, the practices that you need to, to find and, and, and do every day or, or every week to, to find your feet, to get yourself balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all have different practices. I like to go out and walk. I meditate. Um, I live near the beach, so I can walk on the beach. Um, I work for myself, which is a huge one. Mm -hmm. Working for myself is Mm -hmm. helpful. Uh, So whatever those practices are, people, you know, creative expression is one. Music, um, storytelling, um, whatever it is, painting, um, you know, they're all helpful because you find your identity. That's how you express yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And those creative outlets are such a form of self-care. So one question we do like to ask when we come across guests who are self-employed. Now, we kind of live in this age of this constant hustle because we're always connected. There's social media, text messages, Skype, Slack notifications. There's a hundred ways to contact people. Now, how do you manage being self-employed kind of in this very hustle-like 100% 100% grind culture, um, uh-huh. and how do you find balance through that? So I think you have to begin by sort of rejecting the culture, mm-hmm. the restraints yeah. that yeah. the culture puts on you, because yes. God forbid I'm not busy for an hour. Uh-huh. You know? Like I'll yeah. go outside, and I'll, there'll be a bird, there'll be a cardinal in my yard, like a beautiful red cardinal, and I'll spend 10 minutes looking at that cardinal and listening to it. Uh-huh. Um, that is so helpful for me. It's better than any hustle or any grind, you know. I got to be yeah. out there grinding every day. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, you develop talent. You develop capability. You have capability. We all have potential. So you develop that potential, and then you have a skill set that's in demand. And then people will find you. <laughs> I mm-hmm. believe that clients and customers and other people will find you. They'll see the value that you can deliver. Um, and keep Keep developing that that skill set and that value. And part of it is knowing who you are, um, not being kind of pushed into things that you don't work for you because like you're not strong enough to be like this doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that part is tricky. Um, mm-hmm. So finding those practices that help you restore every day because every day you're going to have to restore. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. There's like stress and then restore and then stress again and restore again. 
and I've, I've gotten into that rhythm. Um, self-employment has its own fear. There's like scariness around like, will I lose a client? Will I keep a client? Um, yeah. and I find the more that I'm myself and find clients who like really understand that I'm going to be myself, mm-hmm. I'm just going to be the person that I am. And if that's a problem, I don't work with the client. That client mm-hmm. goes away. I figure that out. They, they're transactional, right? They put in the money and then they get a, some content that doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want a long-term relationship with the client and I'll make that clear up front in the first call. Like I'm looking for a, a, a relationship. Mm-hmm. So if they're mm-hmm. transactional, I find out that they're transactional or that they don't see me as a person. Um, I, I see that I identify it and I'm looking at the, at the relationship um, day by day for signals that like they're not seeing me as a person. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't work for me. So I won't work for those clients. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that because I mm-hmm. feel like that is such a flipping of the narrative that we've been taught like yes. in businesses and, in you know, uh, entrepreneurship and so forth. We've been taught, you know, to get as much business as possible. Don't deny no. clients and so forth. And I don't am, scale. Don't no, scale. scale is dangerous. It, no, it, scale, yeah. it's so dangerous. It is. And then you mm-hmm. lose who you are and your authenticity yes. and, Yep. You know, you've beautifully crafted this business around storytelling and the value of storytelling yes. when other marketers tell you, oh, no, people don't really care about your story. And it's like, no, they <laughs> they really, no, they really do. That's like, horrible. I've talked to so many, like I've read, you know, marketer, it, obviously there's different philosophies of marketing, uh, but, yes. you know, there's, there's marketers <laughs> out there who are like, oh, people don't really care about your about page and your story and so forth. And I'm like, no, Wrong. but like, that's so untrue because- what drives me to to buy a product or to work with someone or invest or whatever, it's because of their story and what they're telling yeah. you and what yes. they're selling and so See, forth. This is I yeah. love this. I love this conversation. <laughs> that is the most important thing in my life, what you just said. Yeah. So you have values that you express mm-hmm. and your values and your story. And people who don't value your story should not be in your around you. You certainly don't yeah. help those clients. Mm-hmm. Don't help them. Mm -hmm. Um, because they're putting out bad things they're not how do we perpetuate a world where we see each other as individuals Um, Mm -hmm. we have to kind of live those values ourselves and our our choices and the choices that we make as consumers and with me as a storyteller working with the clients that I make I have a choice I have to use that choice Mm -hmm. absolutely Um, because you can do it the other way right oh this client has a big name this client will pay me a lot of money Mm -hmm. oh but now I'm unhappy I'm unhappy mm-hmm. because they're not seeing me as a person. They're a transactional client, and I, it's mm-hmm. bugging me. And now I can't sit down and have dinner with my my friends or my wife. Right? This is yeah. in my head. No, no, I refuse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's not it's not worth it. <laughs> no, yeah. no. Long term, it'll it'll get you. You got to be mm-hmm. careful. And I'm vulnerable. I'm very aware. This is where the awareness of your own vulnerability is the best thing you can have. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. To be so aware, because um, then you you know yourself enough. Like, oh, I have to be careful in this situation, mm-hmm. or I have to prepare for this situation, or I can see that this is going to go south in another month. So, like, be aware of that and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and you know, kind of the conversations around vulnerability makes me think of Brene Brown. I'm not sure if you've yes, yeah, I love yes. her. Um, Wonderful, she's great. Yeah, she <laughs> is, and you know, I. 
recently one of my friends, her sister went to rehab and she kind of, you know, posted on social media about it and so forth. And I was checking in with her and she's like, I just don't know how you can be vulnerable and share parts of your story that are uncomfortable. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe I've just gotten beyond that point of discomfort. Yeah, you learn. And because I think also, I you know, being in certain communities, I've been like accepted and people haven't shamed me for sharing my vulnerabilities, you know? And I think that when you're like, and that's part of it is like being authentic is sharing those vulnerabilities and that when you have those, you know, not everyone's going to like you and not everyone's going to work with you. And that's fine. You know, it's fine. Fine. Great. Then don't, you know, I don't want to work with you either. Like mutually agreed. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is so much beauty and vulnerability and authenticity and, um, I think that part of that propelled my vulnerabilities is, you know, my struggles with my mental health and so forth. Right. Um, Absolutely. But I see so much strength at the end. And so that's why I'm able to share that now, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the big payoff at the end of the road is that you get you understand your vulnerabilities and you're able to see it in others. Mm-hmm. You're able to develop this empathy. Mm-hmm. And I use that every day as a storyteller, as a writer. I'm using that empathy, but also in my personal life, helping other people, understanding their their concerns and being aware and t- helping them talk through things, asking simple questions like, does that situation work for you? Do you think that will be yeah. sustainable in six months? Do you think that will continue? Simple questions can unlock a lot of value for your friends and yourself, obviously. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a sounding board function, but it's an important one. And people don't have time, right? This is where the grind mentality or the the hustle mentality. Like, I don't have time. I can't have a cup of coffee with anybody. I'm so busy, you know? Look at me. My schedule is is full. Well, you're not (laughs) successful. I mean, I'm the one, you know, what's his name? The Berkshire Hathaway um, founder um, from Omaha, Nebraska. He's slipping my mind. Very wealthy um, Warren Buffett. Oh, Warren Buffett, yeah. He he said recently that busy is the new stupid. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. I feel that. (laughs) I try not to be busy. Like, I'm never so busy that I don't have an hour for someone. Yeah. yeah. And like, if I, I did, I'd be sad. <laughs> I'd be yeah. sad. No, I know. Yeah. And I'll like try and make plans with like certain friends and they just glorify being busy. And it's like, everyone's oh, equally oh. busy. You know, we all have, yeah. a bunch, we all have <laughs> multidimensional lives, but yes. at the end of the day, you know, our work is important and we need to pay bills and so forth. But at the end of the yeah. day, it's about who you surround yourself with. It's about your connections yes. with your family and your significant other because no one's going to the grave wishing they worked more. Okay. Right. Right. I didn't finish my to-do list. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. More to do on the, on the epitaph. Yes. Oh man. Oh, wow. There's no joy in that, right? There's no joy in like no. Xing off your to-do list every day. No. I mean, you have to, I do that. I do that, but it's more than that. It's like, I finished my task for the day. Now, what is it that I can do? And yeah. I do other creative pursuits. I do the life storytelling. I take classes in, in the evening. Mm-hmm. Find ways mm-hmm. to be to be whole, you know, mm-hmm. and to engage in community is is a big part of that. Yeah. And now that yeah. you bring that up, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more? Are there certain communities you've developed or you've joined? And, yeah. Yeah. I'd love to learn more about that. Absolutely. Well, I'm involved in the 
marketing community here in Boston. So mm -hmm. um, there's several groups. Um, the Boston Content Group is a, here, a group of marketers in Boston. I think 2,200 members. Um, the Freelancers Union, um, which is creative mm -hmm. professionals who are freelancers, uh, web designers, not just storytellers. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm involved in the creative community. I go to events. I have coffee with other friends of mine who are not just writers and storytellers. They're like graphic designers or um, filmmakers, um, people doing um, videos, video producers. So I try to like connect with people one-on-one -on -one and then like, let's have coffee, let's have lunch and, um, you know, hear their concerns and see if I can help them because people lose their jobs. Like if you know people for more than a year, someone's going to lose their job or they're going to have a problem that they need to work out and you can be there for that. Um, and that's where it's taking initiative. Like I said, reach out and take the initiative to check in with somebody and, you know, because um, you'll need that too. Like I need that as well. That helps me. You might mm -hmm. think I'm helping someone like, let me connect you to a client who needs a graphic designer, which I do all the time. I'm happy to like hook up other creative professionals with my clients if, if they need that work done. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm also mm -hmm. getting help as I help them because I'm engaging in community and that helps me get out of my own head. So again, it's that counterintuitive way that I have of coping with my social anxiety Absolutely. Uh, by creating community and by engaging in community. Yeah. It, and yeah, community is just so important just for yeah. everyone. And mm -hmm. Lauren and I have talked and we've talked with other past guests about, I mean, I have a huge concern around, um, just everyone constantly being on their phone or on their laptop oh, and yes. not and not having the like in person conversations and it's like yes. I, you know I'll go out to dinner and I'll have a family member or a friend and they're like on their phone half the time and oh. like I just get pissed off I'm like <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not good for them either yeah it's and it, helping them yeah and they're like people are getting addicted to it and it's rewiring our brains and it's actually really scary yeah. and our youth is really yeah. being impacted by it and yes. I just Impression. don't. Yeah, and I just don't see anyone like they're talking about it. But I mean, schools really need to start implementing boundaries and certain provisions around it because yeah. mm -hmm. kids aren't going to be learning. They're not going to learn. Like they're already social cues are off for yes. a certain per and it's not because they're yes. on a spectrum or anything. It's just they're so glued mm -hmm. to their phone and so forth. So yeah, community is so important, and especially in person. I mean, a lot of the work we do here is remotely and talking to people from all over the world. But yes, I always say like the best community is the people in person, you know, cause there's yes. nothing like building those connections. Well, in what, person. what I always, what I always say about social media is that these platforms are set up to engage your emotion mm -hmm. and what they've discovered yeah. through their own research. And this is research does support this is that negative emotions are more engaging than positive yeah. in the short term. Yeah. So that the way that they keep you on the platform and keep your attention your, is, is to highlight these negative emotions around jealousy, envy, uh, fear of missing out, obviously, is a FOMO mm -hmm. is such a huge problem now. Everyone mm -hmm. thinks they have to be online. They'll miss uh, an update of Cheryl doing something at the restaurant, taking a picture of her food. I don't mean mm -hmm. to dismiss it. I mean, no, no, one I way to, but that's too much of that is not good for anybody. So, mm -hmm. like, these platforms are selling your attention the, go mm -hmm. the business model of these platforms is to sell your attention to third parties that pay them a, a fee for advertisement or for other uses of your attention. So they're in the attention economy, and you're the product. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so be careful yeah. about they're not interested in protecting your brain or your psychology. It's not their yeah. role. That's that has to be your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it can it can be difficult, and I feel like it's going to be even harder for the younger people who grew up with this technology because yes. it's what they're used to. And so the more we can talk about it, I feel like that's really significant. And another thing that I've noticed with just using this type of technology is that people just don't know how to relax anymore because they're always on. (laughs) There's always something to look up. There's always like something to check. And so I I know people who just say they can't just sit and read a book or, you know, sit and breathe for a few minutes. And like we were talking about before, those are important for having that balance. Exactly. And so that's where like Mm -hmm. being able to spend 10 minutes looking at a cardinal in the backyard is such a strong skill. As a writer, yeah. as a creative person, like being able to sit there for 10 minutes and like people yes. would say, do nothing. They might say, do mm-hmm. nothing, but it's not the case. I'm doing a lot. I'm focusing mm-hmm. attention on something beautiful, something mm-hmm. amazing and, and taking that in. That's better than looking at Facebook and liking 12 posts about that mean nothing to me. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. so managing your own attention and having the ability to focus your attention is such a big skill in life and in business and every, and anything. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why things like meditation are so um, beneficial. Agreed. Agreed. Mm-hmm. It's hugely helpful. It was for me. Um, I was in, when I was hospitalized the last time was five years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I, th- they taught us meditation as part of the group therapy. Oh, um, that's wonderful. On, so I was there for five days and I took five meditation classes and I had never done meditation. But after that experience, when I came out of the hospital, I began meditating. It was very helpful for me anyway, for the mm-hmm. focus, being able to focus and get out of my head, get my thoughts pushed out of my brain and just be with the cardinal, be with the the wind that's blowing, whatever you want to say. Yeah. But just getting out of your head, it helped me anyway. Yeah. And I think it also pushes against this idea of the multitasking culture. And oh. as we know, research yes. shows multitasking, it doesn't task work. Switching, switching, <laughs> task switching. Right? Yeah. You and lose I, productivity. You lose about 10% in the switching. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, like you said, things like meditation and just taking time to just sit there and do nothing is yes. so, it's, it's so like overrated. Like people, yes. like you said, they want to be constantly glued to their phone. But, uh, you know, research shows that this constant multitasking, it literally is changing the way we're working and decreasing our productivity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we don't have attention for each other. We Mm. can't sit down for 10 minutes in front of someone's pain. And by the way, they can't sit down in front of us for 10 minutes and hear our pain. This is Mm -hmm. a huge problem in life. Mm -hmm. We have to sit down with each other. We have to do that. Mm-hmm. It's for me. It's so helpful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, on both sides. For me, it's therapeutic to listen as well as you know. And sometimes I have my bad moments, so it's good to have <laughs> someone across the table to also listen. Well, and I love that you're taking that into your business. You know, you're making that. That's part of what you do for your career is to encourage that interaction between the people that you work with, and that's you know you're really yeah. starting an important dialogue that we need to have. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I could say it was negotiable, but <laughs> with the vulnerability that I do have, it's not negotiable if yeah. I want to be well, and I do want to be well more than yeah. anything. So I have to do that. Mm-hmm. And it helps. It's not, I'm not a prima donna about it. You know, I do, you know, I'm a professional. I'm a business professional. I've learned um, how to get better and less sensitive. It, 
takes a while for a sensitive person to get mm-hmm. less sensitive. Like you're sensitive, but at the same time, you can be professional and interact with people in a transactional way while mm-hmm. you're also sensitive. So you kind of wear the both hats. Um, and I'm one of those people that can do that. Um, but I know which hat is really me, and it's not the professional transactional business person. That's mm-hmm. not the hat I want to I want to live my life in. Mm-hmm. And that's good. For me, it is. Yes. Yeah. And other people have different capabilities. Maybe they can do that, do it a different way, and I respect that. But I cannot. Yeah. And that's learning, like the learning mentality. I think we're all in this learning journey, and being open to learning about ourselves and the world. That's everything. That's everything. Yes. Definitely. And that's accepting bad things about our things we don't like about ourselves. Like, I don't even know if I should put it that way, but there's things about ourselves maybe we want to change. Maybe we, we, we're sad about or we're angry about. We have all these emotions about them, but they don't change. Mm-hmm. So we have to kind of accept and, and learn what we can do in this situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually just started reading um, a book called Self-Compassion by Kristen Neff. Nice. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, I've but it's, it. uh, no. yeah, yeah. It's, it talks a lot about that. She's talking about just, you know, we all have things about ourselves that we don't like or we have insecurities, especially when it comes to, you know, mental health, like social yes. anxiety. But we, we can be compassionate towards ourselves because we're so good at doing it towards other people a lot of the time, yes. not towards ourselves, you know, mm-hmm. right. and, and how powerful that can be. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a coping strategy, too, is that what would a friend say to me now? What would yes. someone who didn't know me say to me now? Because we beat the heck out of our I was one of those people that would beat myself up all the time and put myself on the rack with yes. the anxiety. And mm-hmm. I learned that didn't help me. Like, what would Just a friend say to me? It does. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'll do that. That was a part of my coping strategy was was what would a friend tell me and go through that process mm-hmm. and then do that for myself. Like, oh, I can be my own friend. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that so, that's so wonderful? So wonderful. I love that. But we don't, it takes us a while to do that. Like so many years, it's just like, I'm the worst. I'm, I'll never be anything. I don't know mm-hmm. what my potential is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it kind of gets to the point where we don't even realize that we're thinking those thoughts. Mm-hmm. So Correct. being aware of them can help. Correct. Help that's a huge. <laughs> That's, mm-hmm. that's where the meditation can help, creating yes. even a second of distance, even a half of a second of distance from your thoughts, and then observe them and put mm-hmm. them under questioning or investigation. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not right. That wasn't what I was trying to do. Like, I was trying to do this, but it came out that way. And give yourself some distance from it and observe and learn and, and be nice to yourself. It would be nice. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Be your friend. Be your own friend, yes. Mm-hmm. And then find other friends, hopefully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's a good foundation to be your own friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's all you got. That's right. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This was such yes. a fantastic conversation. We have so many fans, so and I think our, <laughs> yeah. our listeners are going to enjoy. Um, and, yeah, I just I love your mission, kind of in business but also in life. It just seems like you you got to you are at a place where authenticity and storytelling is uh, so much a part of you know what you do and um, yes a lot of people out there they just I think are lost or they are just so focused on other means that authenticity just doesn't it doesn't it doesn't really it's not a priority for them um, yes so I just I just love the the mission of what you're doing it's really great 
and, and people can come into their own authenticity at later times mm-hmm. or at any time in their life is, is a good thing. I, I wish that for them. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. Yes. Thank, thank you, you Amanda. Thank you, Lauren. This was fun. 